That's the question that we've been asking over the last several weeks as we've been working through Acts chapter 2 and the conception of the New Testament church. At my last church, I, I created a document. And in this document, it was intended to be given to students that were graduating from high school at our church uh, as they were preparing to go out of town and to go off to college. And as you might imagine, these, these kids were excited about their futures. They were excited about where they were going to school. And on, in their mind, they were thinking about what their major would be and, and what dorm they would live in and, and uh, what sort of uh, social you know, groups that they would be a part of at their new city. But on this document that I created was a list of churches that I would recommend to them to be a part of in the new city where they were going to school. I wanted to help them think through continuing to live out their faith in their new place. It was one of the last things that was on their mind, but it was one of the first things on my mind. Uh, as these students were graduating out of high school at my church and were going to be going to a new place, I wanted to try to do everything that I could to keep them connected to the local church and to be a part of a, of a healthy and vibrant church in the place where they were going to. In the book Gaining by Losing, J.D. Greer does a very similar thing with college graduates. He had a lot of college students at, at his church, and, and for all these college graduates, he was, the, he was asking them to choose where they would move and where they would go to work based on where they were planting churches in the United States. And so they could move somewhere and they could be a part of helping to start a church. And for a lot of people, that's sort of a crazy thing to even think about, right? I mean, when it comes time for us to, to consider where we're going to move to, where we're going to work, we think about things like, what's the weather like there? We think about things like, what's the state income tax structure there? Uh, we think about things like, is it close to my family? Or for some of us, is it not very close to my family, right? We look at things like, what's the social scene going to be like in this new place? You choose a place to live based off of where you get the best job offer and where you're going to make the most money, Right? You would never choose a place to live based off of what church is there. But why not? I mean, why is that never even taken into consideration when we are looking at where we might live and where we might settle and where we might raise a family? What sort of church that we could be a part of? Why isn't commitment to church ordinary? As we've been going through this, we've been looking at this New Testament church and looking at the things that they were doing. And my contention is that what we see happening in Acts chapter 2 was never supposed to be extraordinary. It was never supposed to be wild and weird to us. It was supposed to be what we do as the church. It's supposed to be who we are as the church. It's supposed to be what ordinary church ought to look like. And so as we've been going through this series, we looked at baptism. Last week we looked at scripture reading. Today we're going to look at commitment to church being ordinary. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you to stand in honor of God's word. If you're able, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 41. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the word of God says, So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Thank you. You may be seated. As we study this passage of Scripture today, thinking about commitment to church being ordinary, here's the action step that I want you to to think about as we're working through this passage of Scripture this morning. Our action step today is to have a radical commitment to creating and transporting koinonia. A radical commitment to creating and transporting koinonia. Now, we're going to talk about what that means as we go through the sermon, but I want you to think about that as we're working through. And so when we think about commitment to church being ordinary, we see in this passage that the New Testament church was devoted to brotherhood. First of all, they were devoted to brotherhood. It says in verse 42 that they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, the Greek word that's translated here as fellowship is the word koinonia. And so I said that our action step today is that we want to create and transport koinonia. And so here, that word koinonia is translated as fellowship. And it says here that, this is, that they were devoted to it. And this fellowship is the togetherness of the group. All the words that we used last week to describe devotion apply equally to this today. Devoted is the verb in this sentence, and it applies to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It applies to all of them. And so just as they were devoted last week to the apostles' teaching, he's saying here that they were just as devoted to this koinonia, to this fellowship. And so that means that they were steadfast, that they were committed, that they were unremitting in this togetherness. And this sort of togetherness that he's describing is highly unusual. You don't find this sort of togetherness in the world. In the world, you find peoples who are divided by language and by skin color and by their political affiliations, by their social classes, by their economic status. But here in the church, you find something different. You find something unusual. You find something that's, that's beautiful and unique. In fact, it's bizarre what you see here. Michael Green in his book, 30 Years That Changed the World, says, we have no idea what it meant to embrace a slave owner and his slave in the same fellowship. But that's what occasioned the letter to Philemon. We can hardly have any conception of the barriers of pride and prejudice that separated Greeks and barbarians in the ancient world. Yet both were to be found in this new society in which Jesus broke down every barrier. We can hardly understand the breakthrough it was to have Samaritans and Jews in the same fellowship. 
That's what you find here in Acts chapter 2. It's bizarre. You didn't see it anywhere else. But the Bible teaches us that we are all equals under the cross. That we are all equally in need of the salvation of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what our language or our skin color or our political affiliation or our social class or our economic status are when we're all dead in our sins and trespasses. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And we all enter through the same narrow gate in the same way. By faith alone. In Christ alone alone doesn't matter what your address is or if you don't have an address they were all together submitted to Christ as king and so why here in this passage are slaves and freed people Greeks and barbarians Jews and Samaritans all devoted to the koinonia first it was because Jesus had changed their lives They are a new creation now. The old is gone, the new has come. And so they're all together in this. Secondly, it was because of the apostles' teaching that they were devoted to. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. You know what the apostles were teaching them? That they were all together. That they were all one, as one family, with Christ as our head. Because they were teaching them stories like the parable of the Good Samaritan. Thirdly, because this new family that Jesus had created was more important than their own tribes. This new thing that Jesus began was their life. And being together was greater than advancing in the social structure of their day. They had different socioeconomic groups, but they were together. They were Jews and Gentiles, but now they're together. In fact, you have Paul calling out Peter because he was not eating with the Galatian Christians. You remember this when we went through the book of Galatians? If you turn there in Galatians chapter 2, in verse 11, Paul says, When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, Because he stood condemned, for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. He says that he treated all these Gentiles like they were brothers, like they were one, like they were koinonia, like they were together, until a bunch of the Jews came from Jerusalem, until they came from James. And then he withdrew and he separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. So all of a sudden it was like, I'm not sure if I know these people anymore. And that koinonia was disrupted. He says the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, then how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? He says, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus had done in all of our hearts, we don't act this way. He says that we are together. We are koinonia. Peter was acting like the world and not like the brotherhood. Even in the 12 disciples themselves, we find Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector. 
Now, zealots were a political group working to overthrow the Roman government in Israel. Tax collectors were working with the Roman government to collect taxes from the Jews. And so even inside of the 12 disciples, you have two guys that could, could not have been farther away on the political spectrum. I mean, they were far apart. But somehow, these two men who were on opposite ends of the political spectrum managed to get along as part of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus around. Now, I can tell you that that's not normal in the American church. But it's supposed to be ordinary. This fellowship, this koinonia, is more important than all of these things. These, it, it brings a togetherness that supersedes the things that would divide us. I remember an experience I had on a mission trip where I met a brother who was from Iran, and he was a refugee in a Central Asian country. And I met him, and, and, and it's almost like we had this immediate kinship, even though we really didn't have anything in common. I mean, almost nothing in common. And, you know, we, we could barely even communicate because I didn't know his language, and he had some broken English. I don't even speak English very well, but the two of us were able to talk a little bit uh, in English, and we just had this, this, this brother. I, it's almost like I love this man. I hardly even knew him. We were family, and so riding for a few hours in a van to, to a neighboring city where he was going to gather a house church and an apartment, and they were going to, uh, it was all these Iranian refugees that were meeting together to, to worship the Lord. And that was special. Watching him lead this church, watching him preach the word to them and, and, and worship together. And then we all took the Lord's Supper together. It was a reminder that we were all bought by the blood of Christ. And that supper is an expression of our faith and our hope in Jesus as our Savior. And they were making that exp ex expression, and so was I, even though we had nothing else in common. But that's sort of ordinary in the church. So what are we doing to create this koinonia? It's something that the Holy Spirit does in us. And he works through us. So you bind us together as family. And look, people are looking to all sorts of groups to find what you can only find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'll join these affinity groups looking for acceptance, looking for love, looking for friendship. And all of those affinities are temporal and they're fleeting, and they're surface. But in the church, our affinity is Christ. And in Christ, we find this acceptance and this love and this friendship that we're looking for. And we extend this friendship and this love and this acceptance unto others. And it's deep and it's abiding and it's eternal because it's found in, founded in Christ. And so when we think about creating this koinonia, maybe we need to ask the question, what sort of associations are we willing to put on the back burner in order to find koinonia with other brothers and sisters? I mean, the first century church would have had strong convictions about a number of things as well, just like we do. 
But they were more devoted to the koinonia than to anything else. John R. Rice says, people go wrong in their fellowship before they go wrong in their doctrine. I wonder how many people have left a church because of disagreements about doctrine compared to how many people have left a church because of disagreements about dumb things. Right? We, we mess up fellowship before we mess up doctrine. Michael Green in that book, 30 Years to Change the World, said, Unfortunately, many modern Protestants do not think that unity is particularly important. The speed with which new churches fragment and split for the most inadequate reasons is proof of how little we will sacrifice to preserve unity. Yet it was this unity of Christians that transcended all divisions of a very divided ancient world that proved such a powerful magnet to Jews and Gentiles alike. And so our brotherhood is rich and poor. It's of every skin tone under the sun. It's of every tribe and people and language. And it's all under the banner of King Jesus, who is the Lord over the heavens and the earth. And so he calls us to be devoted to this brotherhood. It might be bizarre in the world, but it's supposed to be ordinary in the church. Second thing that we see in this passage is that they were devoted to contribution. They were devoted to contribution. Go back to verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. One scholar remarks that there is no single English word that's equivalent to koinonia. We have to use lots of words to try and and to summarize what that word means. But he says the best English word is contribution. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, verse 26, it says Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor. It says they, they were pleased to make a koinonia for the poor. They were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were devoted in such a way to the brotherhood that they wanted to care for and meet the needs of poor members of the brotherhood that they didn't even know who lived far away. That's the sort of devotion that we find here in this New Testament church. Their fellowship was was built by the contribution of everyone there. And so in this church, we see that things like serving was not optional. This was something that they had learned from their leader, Jesus. In Luke 22, verses 26 and 27, he says to the disciples, On the contrary, whoever's greatest among you should become like the youngest, whoever leads like the one serving. For who's greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And so in Jesus, you always find him setting aside his position and taking the posture of a servant. In Jesus, you always see him giving of himself unto other people. And the disciples really struggled with this concept initially. I mean, that's what prompted this this teaching moment by Jesus. Back up in, in Luke 22, verse 24, it says, A dispute arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. 
Like they all wanted to see who was the best, who was the greatest, who had the highest position, who sat at the right hand of Jesus. Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not trying to get in important seats where everybody caters and pampers on you. We want you to get on your knees like a servant and contributing. And Jesus taught them not to strive to be the greatest, but to be the servant of all. And this teaching carried through to this New Testament church. And so in this church, they had an every member mentality. Everybody served. Everybody worked. Everybody did it. There was no 80-20 principle where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Like that's just common statistic that's shared among church people. That's silliness. And the fact that we even have a statistic like that is ridiculous. That, that 80% of the work will be done by 20% of the people. That might be normal in the American church, but it's not ordinary. It should never be the case in a church the size of Wallace Memorial Baptist Church that we ever have to be in need of any sort of volunteers. I'm just being honest with you right now. We should never have to go around begging people to do things when you have this many people in a church like this. It ought to be like Alabama where you got five stars on the second string and the third string. I mean, that's what it ought to be like here. There was no, I did my time in the past attitude. Everybody wanted to contribute to the church. And Paul taught them that they were all parts of a body and each part needed to do what it was called to do for the body to function and to be effective. And so they did that. They weren't scrounging around trying to find church members to work in the nursery. They wanted to care for and teach the youngest. People were stepping up to teach classes when there were vacancies. They weren't having to disband classes because no one would step up to teach. They knew it was important to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. There was no conception of being a part of the church but not serving. That was foreign to them. But it's so normal in the American church. But it shouldn't be ordinary. So what are we doing to create this sort of koinonia? Well, the gospel compels us to serve and to contribute to the fellowship, to the brotherhood. And so it's asking, what can I bring as opposed to what do I get when we come to church? Saying, I want to be a part of this fellowship and bring the gifts and the passions that God has given me to contribute to the mission. It's not, I want to be a part of whatever church has the kids programs I'm looking for. It's not, what's this church going to provide for me? I'm not saying that the church shouldn't minister to and meet the needs of its members. They were obviously doing this. They were doing this in a way that we can't even comprehend. They were selling their possessions and providing for one another. But how were they doing it? By everyone contributing to the fellowship. And that's ordinary. That's ordinary. The last thing that we see in this passage is that they were devoted to the kingdom. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. It says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. 
What we see among this New Testament church is that they often shared meals together. We go into that further as we go into this passage later on. There was this genuine fellowship. There were these relationships together. And New Testament scholars are sort of split as to whether this phrase, breaking of bread, refers to just eating together or taking the Lord's Supper together or maybe even both. I think as you study it, it's probably about the Lord's Supper. Because Luke writes that they were devoted to the breaking of bread, pointing to a specific breaking of bread. And I want you to notice how it's included with all these other spiritual elements of the church, like teaching and fellowship and prayer. And so I think it's more than just they were eating together that they were so devoted to. It's that they were devoted to this specific part of worship, this taking the Lord's Supper together. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, that's exactly how it's used. It says, on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. And there it's obviously talking about the Lord's Supper as they were gathering together on the first day of the week to worship the Lord. But the point of it is that they were together. The point of it is that they, they loved being together and they had Christ in common. That's, that's what's so remarkable about the Lord's Supper is that they had Christ in common as their Savior. They were celebrating what Christ had done in them. And that never got old for them. They were devoted to it. And as I mentioned with this brother from Iran, we had little else in common except Jesus. But we broke the bread together and remembered how the Lord had saved us both and how he had made us family. That was special. And that's what was so special for them. That no matter where they had come from, they're now brothers and sisters in Christ, they're family. And so they're building a strong brotherhood, a strong connection, strong relationships. But I want you to notice how they didn't allow their brotherhood to stifle their mission. Hear that. They never allowed their brotherhood to stifle their mission. As you see later on in this passage, it says they were going from house to house. And so you don't see them with the attitude of, it's us four and no more. They were transplanting and multiplying, even from the very beginning. The church was never supposed to stay in Jerusalem. And we know that from the Great Commission itself. In Acts 1.8, it says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they were recreating koinonia from house to house. We know that all these people spoke different languages. That's what the Pentecost account taught us, right? That they were all there for the festival, and Peter began to preach, and it says that they heard all, they all heard it in their own language. That was this remarkable miracle that the Lord performed there. And so we know that they all spoke different languages, that they're from everywhere. And so as you go through the book of Acts, we find this New Testament church moving and sending out. They were recreating Koinonia from city to city, from region to region, to the ends of the earth. They were transporting 
koinonia. And according to the book of Acts, that's supposed to be ordinary. Robert Savage writes that the command has been to go, but we have stayed in body, gifts, prayer, and influence. He's asked us to be witnesses into the uttermost parts of the earth, but 99% of Christians have kept puttering around in the homeland. Isn't that what would describe the church today? I mean, isn't that what would describe us puttering around in the homeland? But this is what defined them, creating koinonia and transporting that koinonia. In fact, one professor writes that the original language of Christianity is translation. Christianity's always been a movement. It's, it's the, the people of God moving and spreading the good news. And the Holy Spirit would unite them and then send them out to build Koinonia again. So what are we doing to transport Koinonia? It might be that you take people from an existing connect group and create a new connect group for the kingdom. It may be that your D group multiplies at the end of the year to incorporate new people into the discipleship journey process. It might be that you take people from an existing E-team that would create a new E-team to reach out into our community. It might be that people from the Wallace campus would go to create a new campus somewhere else in the city. It might be that you send people from your church to help plant a church somewhere else in the United States. It might be that we would send people from our church to expand the kingdom to unreached peoples around the world. Maybe it's deciding where you'll go to school or where you'll take a job based on the church that you'd be a part of. Why would we multiply? Why would we send people out? Why would we send out our best and most gifted people? That seems strange. According to what I'm reading, it's supposed to be ordinary. And so Christians this morning... Our action step is to have a radical commitment to creating and transporting koinonia. And so perhaps this morning the Holy Spirit's been at work in your heart speaking to you about what it looks like for you to create this koinonia, this brotherhood, this togetherness. And maybe that togetherness has been disrupted because of conflicts, because of strife, because of things going on between you and maybe somebody else in this fellowship that you need to set right. There might be prejudices or attitudes about different types of people, maybe different races, maybe different economic groups, maybe people that live in a different part of town that you need to repent of and set right in your heart today. Whatever is there that's disrupting the fellowship, the togetherness, the koinonia ought not to be there. And so maybe you want to spend some time this morning praying and confessing that to the Lord. It might be that the Lord has been speaking to your heart this morning about this transporting koinonia. Maybe some of these things that we just mentioned. Maybe you need to multiply an E-team or a D-group or a connect group. Maybe God says, I want you to go over and be a part of what I'm doing over at the Cumberland Church. Or another campus that might start in some point in the future. Maybe God's calling you to go and to be a part of Reality Church in Miami. Maybe God's calling you to go serve on the foreign mission field. I don't know, but 
But that's what God does. And we want to be a church that's creating koinonia and transporting it to the ends of the earth. And so maybe during this time of invitation, you want to spend time in prayer at your seat or here at this altar, seeking the Lord in these things. There might be others here this morning who need to become a part of this brotherhood. The Lord has been speaking to you today to say, I want you to be a part of my church. I want you to be a part of my people. And the Holy Spirit has been convicting you. The Bible says that each of us has sin in our heart. And you've been convicted about the sin in your heart. And that sin separates you from God. And there's nothing you can do to make it go away. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. That's why God sent his son Jesus to do what he did. He came to this earth to take our sin upon himself, to pay the price for what we've done at the cross. He died because the penalty for our sin is death. He's placed in the grave, but he walked out alive on the third day. And when he did that, he proved that he had power over sin, power over death. And today he's extending to you forgiveness for your sin. He's extending to you salvation. He's extending to you life. Life that's abundant, life that's eternal. And you can receive this gift from God by putting your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Calling on him to forgive you and following after him as your Lord and as your King. And so in a minute we're going to have leaders here across the front. And if this is a decision that you want to make in your heart today, then you come. And say, I, I want to I be a follower of Jesus. I want to become part of this brotherhood today. But however God is speaking to your heart, now's the time for us to be doers of this word and not just hearers only. Let's stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. God, thank you for your word today. Lord, for the example that we see in this New Testament church. God, of their commitment to your church. God, as we look at this, may it not be something that we look at as unusual or weird or bizarre, but it's something that's ordinary in this church. And so God, do that work in our hearts even right now during this time of invitation that we would have a radical commitment to creating and transporting koinonia like we see in this New Testament church. God, I pray for men, women, boys, and girls across this room, Lord, that today need to become part of this brotherhood, a part of this koinonia. And Lord, the only way that we become brothers and sisters is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray that today that they would turn from their sin and call on Jesus to forgive them, that they would be born again today into the family of God. And so God, move during this time, have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.